0: This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich.
1: Seven seconds to go. Three
0: pointer. Hutchins. Oh, Double order. And Scott Phillips.
1: The yeah.
0: Covering game by game odds and futures markets.
1: Thomas. Shake. Crossover. Step back.
0: outside shots presented by the lines.
2: This is the outside shots podcast, the college hoops betting podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis where there are two meanings to the nickname Kenny P and of course, breaking down everything you need to know on the college basketball odds board presented by thelines.com. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. It really helps us boost the podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notifications for whenever a new episode of Outside Shots is released. Thelines.com is also giving away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily College Hoops Pick'em Contest. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. My host is on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. He is Scott Phillips. I'm Eli Herskovich. Follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich and follow the Lines on Twitter at The Lines US. Scott, my man, how was your weekend?
1: It was great, Eli. I loved your little uh, Kenny P uh, turn of phrase there. Obviously, <laughs> we're big uh, Ken Pomeroy fans on this podcast, but. We've also been big fans of Kenny Payne and fading his Louisville Cardinals and watching what may be the worst high major offense that has been seen, according to Sam Vicini. So, yeah, uh, two interesting names with uh, the Kenny P there and weekend was good. Watched a lot of ball and really, really excited for this weekend. I mean, we'll get into it with the show, but just some unbelievable top 15 matchups and uh, Yeah, we're really going to sink our teeth into the end of non-conference play here before the conference play starts to heat up. No doubt. So here's what we're going to do on today's podcast. We're recording this
2: on Monday night. Our biggest takeaways from the weekend, a monster weekend of college basketball. Scott said, a big weekend of hoops coming up too. Betting thoughts for the upcoming week, including a loaded Saturday college basketball card. Plus ESPN's Jay Billis is going to join us to break down everything college hoops. But first and foremost, Scott, we had dinner. Me, you, You your wife, my girlfriend, Friday night. I have never had, granted, I didn't do it. You guys took the burden of doing it. I have never had to wait an hour plus for a table at a suburban restaurant. So just give the people, the folks listening to the podcast, your thoughts on the
1: situation. Well, Maria's in Rosemont, super underrated. If you're in the Chicagoland area, I love homemade Mexican food. It's one of the spots I've frequented over the years and... Yeah, I mean, a lot of different people in there. Busy Friday night. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I mean, you know, to me, uh, there's not a lot better than getting down to sit down for dinner. We don't get a lot of chance to do that during the season. So, yeah, the hour wait was a, a little bit expected, a little bit um, more <laughs> than I would have thought. But, you know, when you have great margaritas and you're drinking Soul and modello, you can pass the time pretty easily. Really good margaritas, too. I had a spicy one. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. I think that was
2: recommended by your wife. So shout out to Meg, but biggest takeaways from the weekend, Scott, I want to start with you, but first let's look at the updated national title odds border, which you can find the full list over at the lines.com. Houston's still the favorite after losing to Alabama. We'll touch on the Cougars when we get to the rest of the slate, but Houston around plus 700 mattress Mac, by the way, put down a million dollars on Houston to win the title. So apologies okay. to anybody that backed the Cougars in that market. Granted, he did win. Some money with the Astros in the World Series. UConn now tied for the second shortest odds to win the title at around plus 1,100. Tied with Texas. Obviously, some news with the Longhorns earlier today. Chris Beard arrested for third-degree assault. So, big news for a top-tier team like Texas that has national title aspirations. But, Scott, a team that's a little lower down on the odds board. Arkansas priced around Plus 3,000, to 1. That's the high mark for them on FanDuel. Consensus price around 20 or 25 to 1. Big news for them earlier last week. They lose Mizzou Transfer, Trayvon Brazil for the season with the Torn ACL. But Big second half for them against Oklahoma as they
1: dominate the Sooners by double digits. Yeah, Nick Smith is back and healthy now. We've talked about his impact quite a bit on this podcast when, you know, you're missing a top five potential NBA draft pick through the Maui Invitational and through the first few weeks of the season. I was anxious to see how he was going to look in the Arkansas offense, and he's provided an immediate boost, particularly with the perimeter shooting. Now, it really stinks that they're going to lose Brazil for the season. We both have talked about off pod how the ceiling of that starting five, if you included Brazil with Ricky Council and Jordan Walsh and Anthony Black and Nick Smith, was one of the highest ceiling fives that you could put on the floor in college basketball. They could do a little bit of everything. They were athletic. They could shoot. They could switch every position. Now without Brazil, we're seeing some of Arkansas's depth. I mean, the Mitchell twins are going to have a spotlight to shine here. They should see increased minutes after already being key rotation pieces. We've seen Johnson step up in some minutes as well in the Oklahoma win. And I fully anticipate this Arkansas team to keep rolling. They have a ton of pieces that are really gelling right now in a lot of different ways to beat you. But man, losing Brazil just stinks in terms of what their actual ceiling could be. That being said, I think the floor is higher than I had anticipated. Nick Smith has really looked good so far in his limited time acclimating to the offense. And again, I really love Anthony Black. I can't speak highly enough about his game and some of the things that he's able to do. Finishing through contact at the rim, finding open guys, the size that he provides on the ball. There's a lot of things to like about this Arkansas team right now, despite the injury to Brazil. Yeah, and Black's shooting over 40% from three, so definitely notable you said smith helps them stretch
2: the floor definitely adding some shooting prowess especially for a team that could go five out with trayvon brazil not really so much anymore so you mentioned perimeter shooting a little bit of a question mark for this team in the long term one other thing that stood out to me just watching that oklahoma game obviously they were terrific in transition but half court offense still a little bit stagnant they're still in the top 120 of shot quality points per possession in the half court, but bottom 75 in shot quality points per possession in terms of their pick-and-roll defense. And we saw Oklahoma execute against that in the first half, not really so much in the second half when Arkansas got going in transition and then the Sooners started to force some half-court shots. So a bit of an issue for this Hogs defense. Yes, they can switch, and like you said, super athletic defensively, but ball screen defense is a little bit of a concern plus 350 to win the SEC regular season title. I have them power rated just inside the top 20. Any interest for that SEC
1: regular season futures or just in terms of how loaded the SEC is, are you staying away? Yeah, I'm gonna stay away for now, Eli. I we've talked about the top-heavy nature of this SEC and the number of quality teams there, with Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, and Alabama leading the list outside of uh, Arkansas. But you know, even the second tier of this league, with a team like Missouri coming up out of nowhere, LSU's going to be feisty. There's a lot left here. I don't love the number. I, again, I think Arkansas still has a lot to prove in terms of how they're going to look with Smith full time, but. Yeah, I'm going to stay away from those numbers for now. I think we're going to start to see some teams lose early on in conference season that maybe inflates some of those odds, and that's when I might look to make a play there. Yeah, I don't see any value in that number, especially like you said,
2: considering what we saw out of Alabama over the weekend. Top of the conference is very loaded. So over to what kind of stood out for me over the weekend, Scott, and happened Sunday night. So again, we're recording this on Monday. Yesterday, Wisconsin wins in overtime as a four and a half point dog at Iowa, granted Hawkeyes were without Chris Murray, but I'm sure Wisconsin backers were sweating as four-and-a-half-point dogs (laughs) going to overtime. That's where underdogs die, not really the spot you want to be in after pretty much covering the entire game. Iowa stood out to me a little more, though, and I'm curious about your perspective on Wisconsin. Their offense was efficient, and this is still, yes, a top-50 Iowa defense, but a defense that can get exposed in the low post like we saw against Duke at Madison Square Garden earlier in the week. But the fact that Iowa's offense played that efficient without Chris Murray and Rabraco was very sound down low, not only against the Badgers, but against Iowa State in that blowout win when we saw the market come back on the Cyclones after the initial Murray news came out dealing with some plantar fasciitis, it seems like. But back to the Badgers, I get they can play through the low post with Wall and Crowell, they have a top 20 post-up frequency this season, that per shot quality as well. And obviously, you add in Seijin, Klesmith's a good shooter. Hepburn has seemingly improved his jump shot and bottom 63-point shooting efficiency overall last season, and they've made their way up into the top 100 this year. Potential regression rest of the way, like we saw, I believe shot around 30% in that overtime win against the Hawkeyes. That's the thing, though, is I can't trust Wisconsin's half-court offense enough when they get out in transition great, when Wall can do what he did in overtime, and they made two huge defensive plays between he and Hepburn to seal that win. I just don't know if I could trust this Wisconsin offense enough for me to say, okay, there's value in the Badgers to win the Big Ten regular season title, for instance.
1: One thing I love about this Wisconsin team, Eli, is that they never seem to get sped up. They never seem to get scared of the moment. This is a team that's already been to overtime three times this season. They've had numerous other close battles against uh, teams like Dayton and struggling offensively against Green Bay for certain stretches. I mean, they've been in a ton of close matchups against good teams early in the season, and they might miss some shots down the stretch, but oftentimes they're not making stupid turnovers. They don't get sped up from their tempo. They seem to know what they're running and what kind of shot they're looking for, and you know, they've got some guys who can make some plays. Chucky Hepburn has a little bit of sizzle off the dribble. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about his uh, inflated three-point percentage and how we expect to see some regression there. But, you know, the guy takes and makes big shots and is not afraid of the moment. Tyler Wall, same thing. He's able to move without the ball, make a lot of different variety of cuts and plays without the ball. He can take some guys off the dribble that are bigger than him. Crowell had that huge post up with the shot clock running down against Iowa where he's getting just mauled by Rebracca in the post. You know, two arms around him, physicality, Big Ten officials not calling anything, still bangs at home in the overtime and gives them a huge lead there. And I just love the way that this toughness seems to come out in these big game moments for Wisconsin. I don't know what it means for how they face the elites of the conference, but man, they're way feistier than their numbers seem to indicate. This is a team that was 45 to 1 to win the Big Ten in some places as of last night. After the Iowa win, that number's gone down to 22 to 25 in some cases. Makes sense. I mean, would you want to face Wisconsin, especially at the Kohl Center later on in the season, knowing how tough this team is, knowing how they don't get scared, knowing how they're going to be defensive? I mean, again, just uh, they've been really impressive every time these close games have come down the stretch for me. And I
2: think Patrick, or not Patrick McCaffrey, maybe he was a little upset too. But Fran McCaffrey was definitely upset <laughs> in the second half last night facing the Badgers. That was, would you consider that a a top five all time Fran McCaffrey blow up? Uh,
1: I'm gonna say no, um, because it was <laughs> the the yelling was restrained. Uh, it was just mostly like the bulging of the eyes and the stare down. We got a little bit of a walkout. I think he was maybe trying to get tossed after the first tech. Uh, But, you know, like it wasn't like red in the face, heated screaming like we've seen with some Fran meltdowns. So uh, not top five for me, but it was a strong early December conference (laughs) meltdown for Fran. Uh, Definitely a midseason form, as I called it on Twitter. Oh, no question.
2: And go back to my original point, though. Patrick McCaffrey, his son, has really taken a big step as a floor spacer and pretty much can score at every level. And Connor McCaffrey, who... Filling in a little bit more now with Chris Murray out. Made a huge pass to Tony Perkins to ignite a big fast break layup. I think an add one in the second half that gave Iowa a four-point lead. Obviously, they blow that lead and lose in overtime, but his presence is certainly not forgotten on this team. I mentioned Robraca. We both touched on him. Really improved offensively, especially in the low post. And Tony Perkins, too, adding a lot for them as the starting point guard, creating off the dribble, really good defensive guard. So as much as you harp on Wisconsin and Teams don't want to face the Badgers, especially at the Kohl Center. I think the ceiling is extremely high for Iowa, even though the floor is certainly lower. And I think last year's Iowa team was at its peak defensively in terms of the kind of defense you're going to get out of a Fran McCaffrey team. But offensively, with Chris Murray and him taking the step that his brother Keegan Murray did last year, I'm certainly high on the Hawkeyes too when he comes back, you would expect and at some point in conference play, the early portion of conference play. One last thing I want to hit on in the Big Ten before we get over to this week's college basketball card, Scott, is Terrence Shannon Jr., and more specifically another coach in the Big Ten, Brad Underwood. He decided to make a fart noise
1: in the post-game press conference. <laughs> this is not hyperbole either. This is a legitimate fart noise. Like the, Eli's not overselling this, folks. Like, Go listen to Jeremy Warner's video on Twitter for proof of this. It's out there. <laughs> It is. And the
2: reporter, I think it was Derby Warder, like you said, asked him about Terrence Shadda Jr.'s leadership qualities, which he did touch on a lot in the offseason, it seemed like, according to Warner. And then he proceeded to make the fart noise after water asked of the question that was also following Shannon putting up four points. I want to say in the double digit loss to Penn state at the home where Illinois switching defense got really exposed against the Penn state team. That is Jekyll and Hyde from three. I know you're not, I don't want to say a Terrence Shannon jr. Doubter. He had the big performance against Texas in overtime didn't play well In the first or second half in that game. What's your perspective on this Illinois team? Because, like I said, again, that switching defense can work, but when you have a team that could space you out, you can get exploited in that sense. And as much as I like this Illinois offense, it probably the ceiling is as high as, as well as Taryn Shannon Jr. plays.
1: Yeah, I like Illinois a lot, Eli. We've touched on this quite a bit. They've got a lot of key pieces that are starting to mesh together early in the season. I've talked about how their freshman guards have stepped up despite some question marks with turnovers. I love Coleman Hawkins and what he brings to both ends of the floor. And they're going to figure out some unique ways to get him involved in terms of running offense through him and the switchability that he has on defense. But yeah, I mean, Terrence Shannon's got to step up, plain and simple. I mean, these last two games outside of the overtime period against Texas, he's been a relative non-factor. And especially in the half court where teams are starting to really over- play his left hand and the fact that he likes to go to it. He's going a lot to his right and then trying to finish acrobatically with his left hand. So I don't know if he doesn't trust his offhand or if he's just trying to do too much in the half court. And that's what you know, some of the leadership aspects that Underwood is talking about, but he seems to really be forcing it right now. I want to see him just take some in rhythm threes, get up and down the floor like he can. He's one of the fastest players in the country. So try to get him some looks in transition or when he has a full head of steam. And, you know, I expect him to right the ship, but obviously some, uh, you know, some questionable games the last few times out for Shannon and, you know, some things that he really needs to work on in the half court, especially going into big 10 conference season. One thing that I think we both have to love about
2: Illinois' offensive ceiling was Matthew Meyer breaking out against Texas and then continuing that with 14 points against Penn State. Granted, some of those shots he hit against the Longhorns were just pull-up crossovers against Dylan DeSue, I want to say, in the first half, Brock (laughs) Cunningham as well. So probably not something that you can necessarily expect every single game from Meyer, but the fact that he looks more comfortable out there in Underwood's offense is certainly notable. So, Scott, let's start to look at this week's college basketball slate, starting off with the midweek games. And as we're, again, recording this on Monday, Tuesday, the first matchup, the biggest matchup on the card, is Alabama against Memphis. As of now, that line is sitting at tied around minus 6.5, minus 7 against the Tigers coming off of that huge comeback win at Houston, 15 down in the second half and winning that game outright. Total for this game projected per Kempom as of now, and also in the market, 148. Any
1: lean on the side or total for you? I don't love this line, Eli. I I think that this is a weird spot. You have Alabama coming off of its second win against a number one team in the country, which hasn't been done this early in the season ever. Uh, You know, huge momentum boost there, but obviously they're riding high. Then you have Memphis, who's kind of flown a little bit under the radar since the St. Louis loss and pulls off a great victory against Auburn that, again, I think flew a little bit under the radar nationally in terms of what they did. And, you know, Kendrick Davis playing every bit like the best transfer tag that he was labeled in this offseason in that win. I think he went for 27 points on Auburn. To me, I don't love the numbers here. Um, Again, look at some of the The key metrics for this one, I think Memphis has a difficult time containing Alabama on the offensive glass. Uh, you know, Auburn had a couple uh, stretches there, uh, you know, gobbling up offensive rebounds. I think they had 11 in that matchup. Alabama is number two in offensive rebound percentage in the country, whereas the Memphis defense is 288 in clearing. So that could be problematic. But again, we've talked a lot about Alabama's turnover issues and how it can rear its ugly head once in a while. We saw it in the first half of the Houston game with Mark Sears getting a little bit of uh, turnover issues and Javon Quinterly still returning from the knee injury. So if Memphis can force turnovers, and that's 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 something they're very good at. They could stay in this game, but I don't love the numbers coming off of those two aforementioned matchups. I think that Alabama could be riding a little high off of this. I think Memphis is going to have a chip on its shoulder. And Alabama just has a huge stretch of games here. I mean, the turnaround time from both of these teams facing a top 10 opponent on Saturday to having to play on Tuesday is not a lot of time to really get involved in the game planning of this one. So, this is a stay away for me. I think it's a fascinating measuring stick for Memphis in particular. But, you know, Alabama's the hunted now. No one's really you know, they're not sneaking up on anybody anymore. They've got two wins over number one teams. We know Brandon Miller is one of the best freshmen in the country, and they're going to throw waves of length and athleticism at you. So this one's a stay away for me. It's going to be fascinating either way. And a couple of
2: interesting notes that you brought up from the Houston win for Alabama, as impressive as it was, 15 turnovers. The one area or the one player that I was impressed with in that regard, though, especially when Alabama made their comeback in the second half was Jaden Bradley, one of their... Freshman because he he was great. No turnovers. So I think Nate Oates might have found something, especially in transition when Sears, like you mentioned, in Quinterly, Quinterly had a game high or team high, I want to say five or six turnovers. So if Oates can. Trust Bradley, especially in the open floor, to generate offense and generate efficient offense, which is where Alabama is most dangerous. That's certainly notable against a team like Memphis that can pressure the ball, like you said. So to your point, could be a letdown spot for Alabama. And then, like you also said, they have a quick turnaround against Gonzaga, but... I don't think this is going to be a team that Alabama is going to take lightly because you go back to last season and I know there aren't a ton of of the same players on this Crimson Tide team that lost to Memphis last year and similarly, a little bit of a different roster construction for the Tigers too. But Alabama lost that game at Memphis last year. So not necessarily a revenge spot again in terms of the rosters themselves. But I, I don't think Alabama is going to take Memphis lightly. Then again, you have Gonzaga coming up. So we'll see... What happened to the context of the game maybe a first half play on memphis if you think memphis comes out firing and alabama isn't ready for the moment after two wins over two number one teams has never been done before but the front court that owned auburn on the offensive glass and dominated auburn on the glass in general if you look at the rebounding numbers memphis had i want to say quick math here 43 rebounds in the game and Auburn had 32. So, a bit of a rebounding edge from what we saw over the weekend. And like you said to DeAndre Williams and Dandris Chew off the bench, who had some, at least one big fast break opportunity that Memphis really took advantage of the poor shot selection from Auburn in the half court. So, if you get maybe a rough shooting performance from Alabama in the first half and Memphis is exploiting Alabama's transition defense, again, maybe worth a first half play. But I don't think I'm going to have anything on this game As of now, I'm more so looking to that Gonzaga game later in the week for the Crimson Tide. So we're both staying away from Alabama and Memphis. But over to the Wednesday game, a game that I think I'm going to have a play on, Scott, is Maryland and UCLA. And Kempon projects this line, Maryland minus one, total of 141. I would rarely say this about a team, especially even if you get a good second half performance, unless it results in a win. I don't think I usually come away liking a team more in losing fashion, but Maryland was down 21 points in the first half to Tennessee, a half that Tennessee dominated. And the fact that Maryland was almost able to overcome that while shooting two of 24 from deep, they also held Tennessee to, I want to say, .85 points per possession. So their ball pressure in the second half was big in terms of stymieing that half-court offense for Tennessee, and they were able to get their own in the half-court at the other end, not taking contested threes besides some open looks for Dontae Scott in the first half. Scott exposed Tennessee a little bit off the dribble. So did Jameer Young, like we saw in that Colorado game from earlier in the season, Tennessee's guards can get exposed a little bit off the bounce. Now, they didn't have Josiah Jordan-James or Jonas Adu, so their front court depth was a little bit limited. But the one area that I think you're going to see Maryland exploit UCLA in is the Bruins rank number 190 in college basketball and open three-pointers allowed. So assuming you get some three-point shooting regression for Maryland after shooting 8% from three against Tennessee – Yes, Dante Scott isn't necessarily an elite or above-average three-point shooter in his career, but coming off back-to-back losses, I would expect a fired-up Maryland team to, again, be able to, if they're able to get their open threes in transition, a UCLA defense that gives up their fair share of looks from the perimeter, Jameer Young in transition, Hakeem Hart getting those same looks like he did against Tennessee. I think Maryland wins this game outright in a big
1: spot against UCLA. Yeah, Maryland's three-point percentage a little bit deceiving, Eli. Uh, between the Wisconsin game, where they had a lot of open looks at the Kohl Center and just couldn't seem to cash in that one either, and playing with a Spalding basketball against Tennessee, where you know we've now seen some data come across, which I will read to you guys here, uh, courtesy of Stats by Will on Twitter. Will Warren, who does a fantastic job with a newsletter on Tennessee basketball and college basketball at large. He looked at some numbers with neutral site games in which a Spalding TF-1000 was used. And the data basically shows that jumpers being taken with this basketball that they just played with in that Tennessee-Maryland basketball game. Sorry, I'm saying basketball too much. It's hard to really figure <laughs> out this this train of thought here. But the shooting percentages are about 5 to 6 percentage points lower than on a typical neutral court game that we've seen so far in the regular season and across the regular season and all of college basketball it's even less than that so something to be said for playing with some strange uh, basketballs and playing in some foreign settings and having your own gym to play in as a shooting backdrop. And this UCLA defense is not great for me in general. I mean, they ranked 260 in Ken Palm and two-point field goal percentage defensively. That's somewhere where Maryland can exploit you on the inside with their good shooting and their ability to get the ball inside to Dante Scott and dribble penetration with Jameer Young. And, you know, I love this UCLA offense. They've got so many different weapons and ways that they can beat you, starting with Jaime Hockey and his unique ability to craft out spot scoring opportunities. But, I mean, UCLA's got a really tough week here. They've got to travel cross-country to Maryland. Then they go straight from there to New York. And we'll touch on that game a little bit later. But, you know, they went 0-2 for playing in Vegas against Baylor and Illinois. They haven't really beaten a big team yet. Oregon at, at home, nice win, but... You know, a lot to prove here for this UCLA team, particularly defensively. Maryland is really battle tested. Kevin Willard has already made his imprint on this team. And they've been the surprise team of college basketball this first month of the season, despite the back-to-back losses last season. I'm going to stay away from this play, Eli. I I don't necessarily disagree with your logic in terms of why you're taking Maryland here. But again, this one scares me a little bit in terms of how close it is. If the number gets bigger, then I might look Maryland's way.
2: Yeah, I think the best number you're going to get in terms of the line for this game is probably going to be on the open. Maybe Maryland opens plus two at home. That's why I was happy with the Tennessee result. Granted, I have plus five and a half and that was definitely a sweat until the (laughs) trips made their second half run, but it was the best result because Maryland lost outright. So the market is not going to be nearly as high on them as if they had beaten Tennessee in a neutral setting. You get UCLA. Yes. After losing to Illinois and Baylor earlier in non-conference play, but still a UCLA team that the market is still reasonably high on them. And I have them in my top 10, my power rating. So I'm not, that's not to say I don't like the Bruins, but to your point, their defense hasn't been tested against a front court like this. Julian Reese is playing really well too. And he he really impressed me against a very physical Vals front court. So that loss to me told me a lot more about the Terps and honestly, the loss at Wisconsin too made it making a bit of a run in the second half. than I would have expected if, you told me that Maryland lost those games back-to-back last week. So, last weekday or weeknight game, I guess, Creighton plays Arizona State tonight as we're recording this, so we're not going to have the result of that game by the time we're discussing this one, obviously. But Creighton goes on the road to Marquette on Friday night. Marquette team that's coming off a win over Notre Dame on Sunday on the road. and Obviously, a huge non-conference win against Baylor earlier in November. Golden Eagles projected to be a two-point home favorite, total of 152. Any potential bets in this game for you, Scott?
1: I mean, this line and this outcome, strictly for me, is based on the health and availability of Ryan Kalkbrenner down low for the Blue Jays. He's been battling an undisclosed illness. It's non-COVID. Uh, there, is been, there has been a diagnosis, as team officials have said. Uh, but he's definitely feeling the effects of it. Uh, They've talked a little bit about the sluggishness of his play the last couple games. He missed the BYU loss, and uh, obviously that was a major factor in that upset for Creighton. To me, like with the uncertainty of him in the middle... I'm staying clear away from this one because Creighton is a completely different team when he's healthy on both ends of the floor. He's their safety valve on the interior on a cold shooting night when he can get some lobs and some easy putbacks. He's obviously a menace defensively without fouling and walling up at the rim to protect as well. And if he's not on the floor, I'm clearly taking Marquette in this one, depending on what the number is and how the market reacts to that. But. Yeah, I'm not loving this Creighton team right now in general, especially the fact that Kalkbrenner is not seemingly healthy.
2: No, I'm with you. I think if Marquette opens as a two-point favorite, if Kalkbrenner is out, I think that line is pretty spot on. You brought this up with Marquette and Purdue when we were discussing that game a few weeks ago. Tyler Kolick played better in that game than I would have expected. 11-1, to it's just a turnover ratio. So. To that note, even if Brenner does play, and that's not to say I would be on Marquette in that situation, especially if Creighton's coming off a loss to Arizona State, a big-time potential bounce-back spot for the Blue Jays. Again, if Brenner is back, we have no idea what his status is going to be for this Arizona State game coming up tonight. But Blue Jays also play that drop coverage. So, Kolek didn't play well against it last year against Kalkbrenner. 13-10 to assist-to-turnover ratio. Like I said, much better against Edie. So definitely a matchup to watch for with Marquette offensively. You would also expect the Blue Jays to be able to handle Marquette's ball pressure, or the shock of smart havoc. But the question is, like you said, if there's no caulk can they handle this Marquette offense that runs a lot of motion, tries to get shots near the basket? Their defense, like you said in the BYU game, took a big hit around the rim too, even though they have a decent freshman big Kalkbrenner as a shot blocker is obviously a massive a massive bonus for Creighton when he's on the floor. So with Iguodaro, Prosper, and then like I said with Kolek, I don't think I'll be able to have a play in this one either, regardless of whether Kalkbrenner is in or not. So that's our breakdown for the three big marquee games for this week. Alabama, Memphis, Maryland, UCLA, and Marquette Creighton. I have a potential bet on Maryland UCLA Scott maybe leaning towards that I was hoping for a show bet Scott from you with, with yeah, Maryland it doesn't look like we're gonna get there
1: no <laughs> it's too uncertain and Creighton's also shooting incredibly cold right now I still can't put a finger on whether Maui was an outlier because of those soft rims if this is a cold shooting stretch in response or if they're somewhere in the middle. Uh, again, like you have so much talent on the floor there. I am encouraged that Arthur Kaluma stepped up against BYU, even in a losing effort. He's been someone who has been pretty much a ghost in some of these big games in the half court, especially. So to see Kaluma step up is nice, but I want to see Baylor start, or I'm sorry, Baylor Shireman start to hit shots again. Trey Alexander doing the same. And, you know, maybe sometimes letting uh, Ryan Nemhart attack the glass like he did in the second half of the Arkansas game. Sometimes just abandon that offense and go to your top guys and let the horses do the work. So again, creating a lot of question marks right now with or without Kalk Brenner. That's a stay away spot for me, determining his health. And uh that could be a fascinating big East contest on Friday night. They did get some little bit of positive shooting regression in the BYU loss. Kaluma went four
2: seven from deep. Like you said, he he played better. Shireman two of six. Firabello has arguably been the most consistent three point yes, shooter. Yeah brought him up last week so he went 2 of 2 not necessarily a large sample size but definitely brings a shooter an efficient shooter from deep off the bench. So let's kick off the monster Saturday slate Scott going in a chronological order in terms of the tip-off times for these games. Kansas Indiana starts things off I want to say around noon Eastern. We were both on Arizona on Saturday night, a comfortable Wildcats win over the Hoosiers. And if you missed that bet, you can head over to the Lions Discord channel. Just go to the Lions.com and join the Discord channel for free. And you'll see that bet along with many others from Scott and myself. Arizona exploited Indiana down low with Ballo and Tubalas. Now, Kansas doesn't necessarily run an efficient post-up offense or at least a frequent post-up offense because they don't have that dominant low post big. Kansas with 1.25 points per possession against Missouri, though, over the weekend. They exposed a very overrated Tigers team who had played nobody in non-conference up until that former Big 12 rivalry game on Saturday, which you were all over Kansas on. Congrats to you and that Kansas minus three and a half ticket. But what's the initial thought for this game with Kansas on Kempom projected to be a five-point favorite at home, total of 141?
1: For me, it's again the Kansas offense. I touched on this the last podcast, but I think it's three straight games over 90 points now. They're really putting it on opponents. And when you have that elite floor spacing from Grady Dick, who I would argue is the best three point shooter in all of college basketball so far this season, he's been incredible it just opens up so many opportunities for other guys on the floor, especially when you're spacing out five at a time. And, you know, Jalen Wilson's development has been clear throughout this entire season. He's still in the mix for the wooden award odds at the top. And, you know, even despite losing a guy like Bobby Pettiford off the bench, they've replaced him with Joey Sufu. I mean, they've got the depth pieces, they're playing well, and they're figuring out how what they're doing on offense. To me, like, if you're Indiana, you got to slow them down first and foremost. And after an uptempo game where Arizona pretty much got what it wanted, I'm a little concerned about this Indiana defense slowing down a Kansas offense that's really rolling right now. And the other thing that concerns
2: me about Indiana, granted, I apologize to Matt Painter on the podcast, Scott, a few weeks ago. I got to apologize to <laughs> Ray Thompson. Hit three threes against Arizona. Had, had a half-court lob that you texted me about against Nebraska earlier in the week.
1: So settle down, Eli, on the race <laughs> Thompson hatred. The, you you seem to like just find the state of Indiana and you know somebody from there. Just stay away from the Hoosier State for a minute. <laughs> yeah, Matt Painter
2: and Ray it clearly are coming for me. As it seems like watching their two teams play of late. But Grady Dick, to your point, forty six percent from three. McCuller has found his perimeter jump shot. Yes, Wilson can space the floor as well and is more efficient than he was last season when he was projected to break out. Indiana with a bottom 50 shot quality points per possession at the defensive end against off-ball action, which is where Bill Self thrives. So that's where I'm concerned about Indiana in this matchup. Now, Kansas's post-up defense can be had, and that's where maybe Trace Jackson-Davis is a little bit more efficient than he was against Umar Ballo in the Arizona game. But the biggest factor for me is, because Xavier Johnson's going to have to deal with Dewan Harris, which is a tough matchup. Johnson has yes. 15 turnovers in his last three games. Can Hood Shafino play in this game? He gives you a secondary ball handler and a little bit of a floor spacer, more so of a floor spacer than what Indiana's had at the two-guard spot, even though Galloway can shoot it as well. Hood a much more athletic two-guard. So that's the biggest thing for me. I have Indiana. put them back in my top 25 power ratings, but can they get some off ball help for Johnson? Because Harris is going to be hounding him the entire game.
1: Yeah. For me, I don't love the number if it starts out at five, although, you know, obviously Allen Fieldhouse gives a little bit of an advantage to Kansas there, but if it gets a little closer, maybe say four, four and a half, then I might start to look at Kansas there. Um, Again, the offense is just really rolling right now
2: over to the next game and a huge game projected to be a top 10 matchup coming into the season. Alabama and Gonzaga, like we hit on earlier, the tide to fresh off of that huge upset at number one, formerly number one, Houston. This is a semi-neutral site game in Birmingham. It looks like Kempom projects this line at Alabama as a short favorite and the total of 155, understandably a high total with two up-tempo teams. Scott, if Alabama's coming off of back-to-back big wins, let's say they Cover against Memphis, so the market is pretty high on them after upsetting the former number one team in the country. I think we're going to get enough value here in Gonzaga, even with this game being a semi-home game for Alabama. You would expect a predominantly large Alabama fan base for this game. But revenge game for Gonzaga off of that loss last year to Alabama when they lost in their semi-neutral court game against the Crimson Tide in December of Last season, I have Gonzaga power rated higher than Alabama. So that kind of says to me, okay, the market might be a little bit higher on Alabama. Slight spread edge towards Gonzaga potentially on the opener. One other thing to note here for Gonzaga is they face the fifth toughest strength of schedule so far per Kempom. So yes, Alabama coming off of a huge win. They also dropped a double-digit loss to UConn earlier in the season. Yes, they have a size advantage against Gonzaga, which would mitigate Drew Timmy down low. But Gonzaga did fare well against Baylor on the glass. That really impressed me in that loss, even though they blew that game. They were really impressive with their gang rebounding. And the other note, too, is Alabama bottom 40 defense against catch-and-shoot threes, which is where Gonzaga can really beat you, assuming Julian Strother and Rasir Bolton are on from deep. So if this line opens at around Alabama's a short favorite, I'm probably going to have to bet the Zags.
1: Um, Again, stay away spot for me as well. I I don't love this schedule of games that Alabama has in consecutive. And Gonzaga, this game is more important for them than it is for Alabama, shockingly enough. I mean, we talked a lot about Alabama kind of earning two signature wins early in the season. They're going to have a tough SEC slate where they face a lot of top 10 teams later on the season. Gonzaga, as we talked about earlier this year, They don't get a lot of shots at NCAA tournament caliber teams after this. They were sluggish during the start of the season. They didn't get maybe some of the wins that they thought they were going to get. This is one of their last opportunities to really earn themselves a quad one win here, especially before they get into WCC play. So I think Gonzaga really preps hard for this one. They're going to be ready after the Baylor game. As you mentioned, they've shown toughness against Michigan State stay away spot for me. I think it's close because they can obviously throw waves of bodies at drew Timmy and make things very difficult for him. But you know, by extension, I still don't trust this Alabama backcourt and, you know, paired with a Gonzaga backcourt that I also don't trust. (laughs) That's kind of a a bad recipe to bet on if you don't trust either backcourt. Um, So for me, stay away spot, but I can see why there's a lot to like about Alabama here. I can see why Gonzaga would be really motivated to get this neutral win in a quad one setting. And again, I think they've righted the ship in terms of some of their early season mistakes in terms of their guard play and what they're doing to get Timmy the ball. Over to the third of many huge games on the board on Saturday.
2: Virginia projected to be a one-point favorite at home against Houston. Projected total on Kempom of 113. Houston blew out the Hoos last year at Houston. Any bets for you with a low total that I would assume is going
1: to be bet as soon as it opens? Yeah, I'm aiming for the under depending on where this line comes out. This is going to be a rock fight. I mean, these are two slow tempo teams with guards that can really turn you over. Neither team is going to be uh, particularly looking to get out and run all that often. And, you know, for me, I'm anxious to see Virginia and how Reese Beekman's health looks. Uh, You know, with that ankle injury against Michigan, their offense hasn't been quite as good as it's been the last couple weeks, but. Again, like they've had some dangerous wins already this season. They move the ball incredibly well against a tough defense like Houston, and they shouldn't really be phased by the pressure that they face with the Houston guards, but again, Houston's going to be incredibly motivated here themselves. They just lost a game at home as the number one team in the country. That kind of pressure of being number one is now off of their backs, and they get to go to a road environment where I don't think people are really expecting a lot out of them in some cases. So if that number shifts because of the Beekman injury, I might look to Houston here. I might look for the under as well. Otherwise, I think this is a susceptible spot where Virginia might lose its first game of the season.
2: And looking at some of the tempo numbers, I would definitely lean towards the under as well, depending on, where this opens up at two top 20 defenses. Granted, we've hit on this with UVA, not necessarily the best pack line defense that Tony Bennett has had, but still an upper echelon defense across college basketball, both teams, bottom 20 and adjusted tempo per Ken Pom. so going to play at a slow pace, going to grind you down at the other end of the floor. and then Virginia's ability to break Houston down off the dribble to get some open looks against an interior-focused defense, but he's not healthy with the ankle and the hamstring injury, and also with Virginia shooting just under 40%, you would expect some more regression shot quality, projects that three-point percentage to be at around 34% right now, and then Virginia at the other end runs that vaunted pack line defense under Tony Bennett. They allowed 1.14 points per possession to Houston last year. But Marcus Sasser, number one, dealing with the cut above the eye, right eye, as we saw, definitely made a difference with his shooting against Alabama. And Houston doesn't necessarily have the floor spacing that it's had in years past to take advantage of another interior-focused defense. So Tremont Mark and Chet could space the floor, but Houston shooting around 33% from deep, I would definitely look towards the under, depending on where the number is as well. Over to the Madison Square Garden doubleheader, where you have UNC and Ohio State tipping things off. Kempom has Ohio State as a short favorite projected and total of 149. Any thoughts for you, Scott, here?
1: I might look to UNC here for the first time this season. I mean, this is kind of a buy low spot for them. They've had a lot of chances to fix things over the last couple of weeks since falling out of the top 25. They looked a lot better in the win over Georgia Tech. One of the things I noted earlier this season that I didn't like about North Carolina is that they were playing a lot of hero ball. They weren't sharing the ball. It really showed in their assist to field goal ratio. Against Georgia Tech, that was much improved. They were moving the ball with force. They were making plays. They trusted each other. They looked for each other on open shots. And I think that type of play can definitely translate to future success in a game like this against Ohio State. We know Ohio State has a great offense. Zed Key had a really strong outing this week. I think Baycock can kind of slow him down a little bit on the interior, Ohio State's going to get some shots. I mean, Bryce Sensabaugh is one of the better freshman scorers in the country. They've got a lot of different weapons around Key once he gets rolling in the post. But to me, I think Carolina might be able to exploit uh, Ohio State's defense here. I mean, this is a team kind of flying a little bit under the radar. They still have the talent to be one of the best teams in the country. And again, in a by low spot where I think they can mitigate some of Zed Key's um, offensive ability with Baycott one-on-one, I think you might look at the Tar Heels here.
2: Yeah, and just a couple things to back you up there. Isaac Likely potentially out, and he's been dealing with a personal issue, one of the better on-ball defenders in the country, and that would mean that Ohio State is without potentially one of its better defensive guards against R.J. Davis and Caleb Love. And then Ohio State with the top seven offensive rebounding percentage across college basketball, and obviously second-chance shots for the Buckeyes would help slow down that up-tempo offense that UNC runs. But Baycott him being healthy definitely mitigates Key's ability to generate some of those second-chance shots. Off-ball defense, though, was a little bit of a concern for me with UNC. We've seen teams exploit UNC's defense with that motion. Chris Holtman, you have brought it up to me off-pod, as you would like to say, a lot this season. And they could definitely do so if McNeil and Sensabaugh are on from deep. So just a couple of thoughts there. I agree with you from a market standpoint that this might be a buy low spot though for UNC, but a couple of game angles to take a look at. Scott, the second leg of the back-to-back at Madison Square Garden is between UCLA, Kentucky. So you mentioned that tough stretch for the Bruins this week at Maryland and then against Kentucky on a neutral floor. Kempom makes this line, Kentucky minus one. So Wildcats, a short favorite. Total of 143 here. Maybe to your point, similar to UNC, a little bit of a buy-low spot with Kentucky just because of how they fared offensively and getting exposed defensively in their last big matchup against Michigan. But I do think Kentucky has a bit of a front court advantage with Oscar Shibwe going up against the Rar Adem the five-star Freshman for UCLA Bruins, obviously short-handed in the front court in comparison to previous seasons, but it really depends on if Kentucky is going to get the floor spacing with Reeves, who shot it better against Michigan, which you hit on in our last podcast, and CJ Frederick, who really hasn't been consistent this season against a defense that packs you in under Mick Cronin. Now. Case and Wallace at the other end should be able to neutralize Jalen Clark, who's broken out a bit over the last two games, 38 combined points for UCLA. Clark has put up in their last two matchups. I have UCLA slightly power rated a little bit higher than Kentucky, but maybe this is a spot where I look towards Kentucky live if they're down a couple possessions and I can get them plus four, plus five. How are you looking to attack it?
1: For me, I like Kentucky in this one, Eli. And again, it starts a little bit with their inability to stop guys down low. We touched on that in the Maryland preview, how the UCLA defense 260 and Ken Palm on two-point field goal percentage, some question marks on the interior. I mean, when you're going against Oscar Shibwe, You're going against the best of the best in college basketball. And Kentucky's going to pound the ball into him at will. They're going to try to make things happen, withdrawing foul trouble on UCLA's defense. And when you see Mick Cronin give some of these press conferences that he's given in November, kind of questioning some of his team's toughness and what they're really about, those two losses that we touched on earlier, this is a lot for UCLA. They're going to have to travel to Maryland before this game, then head to Madison Square Garden after. It's a long road trip against two tough physical teams. That's why I like Kentucky here. I, I think UCLA maybe down the line, talking you know March might be a little more in tune, especially defensively here, but I think Kentucky's able to exploit Chibwe inside and get him involved early, and that's why I like the Wildcats to dominate in this one. And over to an, a night game. We've had a lot of early
2: to late afternoon games on Saturday. The number one, or I have them at least in my number one <laughs> at, in my power rankings, UConn against Butler, and I have a UConn shirt on. Got to back my Huskies. I have those, that UConn future at around 66 to 1. UConn at Butler. Ken Palm has this projected at UConn minus 10, total of 142. Looking at this game inside out for UConn. I think they're going to have a bit of a post-up advantage, even though Manny Bates is a solid post-up defender. UConn has that length inside with not only Adama Sanogo, but Klingon as well, who didn't miss a shot against, what, Long Island State over the weekend. I know 10 for 10 is going to be hard to come by against a high major program, granted, and Butler when you have a post-up defender like Manny Bates. But my issue with Butler is, can they get the floor spacing, even with Aaliyah Lee potentially back, the Akron transfer, who can stretch it, against a UConn team that, again, is so sound down low at the other end of the floor, with Sunogo, who's become a much better rim protector, and then a guy like Klingon, Andre Jackson, limits dribble penetration. UConn is due for some three-point shooting regression, though defensively allowing opponents to shoot Around 28% from deep, according to shot quality, should be around 32%. So can Chuck Harris, Eric Hunter, Lukosius, can they continue their three-point shooting stretch that they've been on of late against this UConn team? I don't think I'm going to have a play in this one. Maybe a look towards the under, but again, if if Butler can get out and transition and get some of those open
1: looks from deep this one could go over, so I'm probably going to be staying away from the side in the total. Yeah, 10 is a little bit high for me, Eli. As you touched on, Butler can be streaky shooting from the perimeter, but that being said, I really like their advantage on the interior. I mean, Manny Bates is pretty much an island in terms of this Bulldogs rotation, and when you look at him having to face both Sunogo and Donovan Klingin, that's where things get dicey for this Butler defense. They're not particularly great stopping opponents at the rim. They're 127 in Kempom at two-point percentage. You know, again, this UConn spacing that they're able to create, it's a lot of stuff with Jordan Hawkins running off of double staggers and drawing the attention of the defense regardless of whether he's getting the pass or not. And that just opens up so much space on the interior for Sunogo and Klingon to go to work. Uh, you know, UConn's on this streak of blowouts lately. I don't necessarily love them to blow out an opponent for a conference opener on the road, but that is something to really look at because they're not afraid to really put it on you early. And that could happen if Butler's not hitting shots here. Yeah, it's a difficult spot in that sense for the Huskies
2: at Butler, which is a tough place to play under a good offensive coach in Thad Mata. Now, Butler has been able to shut down motion, to your point, getting Hawkins off some of those double staggers. You also have to wonder if UConn's three-point shooting is going to keep up at this rate. Hawkins has improved his shooting in a big way from last year in terms of consistency. 43%, though, might be a little tough to keep up over the course of a full season. Calcaterra, the San Diego transfer, 57%. And Caravan, who's at the four, the freshman, around 40%. So, tricky spot for UConn on the road. Maybe if this line is a little more inflated towards the Huskies around 11-10, you give a look towards Butler with their ability to stretch out UConn like we both hit on. But as of right now, might be a stay away. Also, be sure to look for a Leah Lee status, like I mentioned, who could really space the floor and also help Butler on the glass. He's been out for the entire season so far with a nose injury. Jalen Thomas doesn't look like he's going to be back. And also, Miles Tate, Hasn't been practicing with an undisclosed illness. Last game to hit on, Scott, before we get to our guest, Jay Billis, is Arizona and Tennessee. I can't wait to hit on this game because I've been waiting to fade the Vols. Granted, I did it against (laughs) Maryland. And fortunately, I got a little lucky in the second half with that Maryland comeback. Although, Maryland probably should have won the game outright if they hit two more open three-pointers. Couldn't believe some of the shots that they missed with Dante Scott and Hakeem Hart in the first half. Kempound projects this line at about Tennessee minus one on the road, total of 149.
1: What say you here? Again, like it's it's crazy. We're seeing the number one offense, the number one defense face each other this early in the season non-com, but Arizona's too big lineup. We've touched on this before with how Utah spaced Carlson out for five three-pointers in that loss that Arizona had. I don't see Tennessee's front court being able to space out Balo and Tabelas the way that Utah has. And for me, there's a lot of question marks about about this Tennessee offense. Uh, We know that defensively, they're throwing grown men at you, and they've got a style of play that's going to be physical. They're going to manhandle you in a lot of ways. But with Santiago Viscovi still overcoming injury, Josiah Jordan James status being uncertain, This team is not clicking at all on offense so far this season, and they've been able to take some teams like Kansas and have them play to their tempo, which is a huge credit to obviously what they're trying to accomplish on the defensive end. But against an Arizona team that plays at a breakneck pace with two really good bigs that can really get things down low, I like Arizona in this matchup. And again, I think that Tennessee's ability to crash the offensive glass which was so important especially in that first half of the Maryland win is mitigated a little bit by that Arizona front court being so effective clearing the glass and for me I think if Arizona gets off to a hot start and they're able to control tempo this one could be an easy win for them but you know again one of those matchups where Tennessee at the wrong time of the year with their offense not quite there yet I don't think can match with the firepower that Arizona can bring to the table. And the other thing that concerns me about Tennessee defensively you
2: brought up their length obviously going up against Ballo and Tabellus. See, I thought we were going to get it against Maryland, and then you brought it up with Maryland's three-point shooting with the basketball itself at, (laughs) I want to say in Brooklyn, against Tennessee, but Tennessee's opponents have shot 20% from behind the arc, which is, I I brought up some regression numbers, negative regression for some three-point defenses so far in college basketball, that number has to regress, especially against an Arizona team that could really space you out with Kirk Creasa, whether it's in motion or off the bounce himself. Courtney Ramey has improved his three-point touch, especially in this sort of an offense that's going to get you open looks under Tommy Lloyd. Henderson, the mid-major transfer, is also shooting around 37% from three. They're all hitting contested shots. And the other thing I like about where is Tennessee's offense going to come from? Like, you started to hit on this, but... When Maryland pressured the ball and Tennessee got up in the half court with about 20 seconds left in the shot clock and they couldn't get open looks off of ball screens, they didn't know what to do offensively, truly. Ziegler was trying to create a little bit. He couldn't get into the lane. They got fortunate because Maryland maybe tried to jump the passing lane a bit too quickly with five seconds left in the shot clock that opened up some three-pointers. Arizona has given up some open looks from three, granted, but Tennessee isolation scoring is not there. 47th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency. Where do you get scoring when the shot clock is down? And again, Arizona isn't an elite defense, but if they're able to leak out in transition and get those open threes and get that three-point regression that is inevitable for the ball's defense and Tennessee is operating from the half court, I don't know where they get offense from if this Arizona defenses clicking, especially in front of a fired up home crowd.
1: Yeah, and you know, with Tennessee, it's about that balance. They're number one in the country right now in assist to field goals made. As you kind of mentioned, Eli, they're not an isolation team whatsoever. They've got talent, they don't necessarily have talented scorers. And so they're going to need to create in the offense. They're going to need to make sure that they're getting other guys' looks instead of having the shot clock run down. But Again, in an Arizona game where they're going to try to get up and down with you, that might not necessarily be a huge disadvantage for Tennessee. They should hopefully be able to get some shots, but they have to make sure that they they knock things down and that Vescovius, in particular, is starting to feel a little bit better with that shoulder strain. You saw him rubbing it at the end of the game, too. So that's yeah.
2: definitely something to watch for. Another couple injuries, I mentioned this earlier, is Josiah Jordan James and a do for Tennessee. Two big front court pieces off the bench that allow them to have that third highest. Offensive rebounding rate that you hit on across college basketball. So we've touched on everything for college basketball betting wise for the week, Scott. Now, after this quick timeout on the lines.com outside shots podcast, we'll get to ESPN's college basketball analyst, one of the best around in Jay Billis.
0: You're listening
1: to the Lines.com podcast network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top US sports books all in one place then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust.
0: to make you a better sports better.
2: You guys hear the noise in the background. That is our guest as he's in LA for an ESPN High School broadcast featuring Bronny James as we're recording on Monday night. He is Jay Billis, the ESPN College Basketball Analyst, obviously one of the best college basketball players to play at Duke. Jay, how are we doing? A Big time college basketball slate coming up this weekend and you've been traveling all over the country so far.
0: All over the world, yeah. Uh, So (laughs) when I get back from this trip to L.A., uh, it will be 30,000 miles in 30 days this year. So (laughs) I've got a lot of frequent flyer miles and a lot of of airport time in.
2: No question. And let's start off with the game that you were at over the weekend, Alabama and Houston. Alabama overcomes that 15-point deficit in the second half. What was your biggest takeaway from Alabama's comeback at the Cougars?
0: Well, Alabama's got a ton of length and athleticism. And I think a lot of people look at Alabama and go, okay, it's a three-point shooting team. But really, they're a a penetrating team. And in the second half, uh, you know, the game loosened up a little bit. The officials called it tighter. And Alabama went to a smaller lineup. You know, Jaden Bradley was terrific. But, uh, you know, they took Charles Petiaco out. And they played a smaller lineup, and they were really able to get into the lane and, and beat Houston off the dribble, force help, and then they kicked it to, to three-point shooters. And it was an impressive game because Houston's legit. Uh, so to win that game on the road, you know, Alabama's got as many good wins this year as anybody, and they've beaten two number ones uh, in North Carolina and Houston, Houston on, the, uh, on a, their home floor. Uh, so I think the young team that Nate Oates has, they, they've proven they can play.
1: Jay, you touched on Houston a little bit. They're obviously still the title favorite in a lot of odds books, but there's been so much parody so far this season. And which team have you seen so far that you view as the best in college basketball right now?
0: It'd probably be between UConn and Purdue. Uh, those are the two best teams I've seen. I don't know that at least yet we have anybody that separated like a couple years ago when, you know, Baylor and, and Gonzaga were the, the clear two best teams. There were other very good teams out there, but those were the two best And, you know, oddly enough, played for the national title against each other. Uh, But I haven't seen anybody that I feel that way about just yet. The closest would be UConn and Purdue, though.
2: Over to the Big 12, which has some of the best teams in the country as well, Jay. Kansas looks Reloaded after winning the national title last year. Baylor has elite guard play, especially with the five-star freshman, Keontae George. Texas also near the top of the AP Top 25 poll. Would you consider the Longhorns to be the cream of the crop in the conference, or would you look elsewhere and maybe stick with the Kansas?
0: It's a close call. I mean, Texas is really physical, and, uh, and they're very good defensively. And their guards are really good. Um, they they don't shoot the ball cons- as consistently as perhaps they need to, but I would call them more streaky. Uh, so they can go off on you like they did against Gonzaga, or they can, you know, they can go four for twenty uh, from three. That that's that's possible as well. And and obviously with the news about Chris Beard being suspended after his arrest uh, on Sunday night, uh, or I guess it was early Monday morning, um, that, that throws a whole new wrench into things. And who knows how things go from from here and what his status will be. But, you know, when they were, uh, you know, before this, this weekend and that, that sad incident occurred, um, you know, they were in the mix for I mean, clearly a top 10 team and, and maybe better.
1: Jay, you touched a little bit on Purdue and what you've seen from them so far. Zach Eadie is obviously one of the big stories of this season, ascending to the Wooden Award favorite is this Purdue team the favorite in the Big Ten right now? Obviously, it's a very deep conference with a lot of teams like Illinois on the second tier that have also played well. But what have you seen from the Big Ten that stands out?
0: Well, Purdue. Yeah, it's P- Purdue and Indiana, I think, are probably the two best teams. You know, Indiana, not quite as powerful as Purdue. And, you know, Purdue's got something that nobody else has, and that's Zach Eady. I mean, you got a 7'4 guy that you have to double team. And if you double team him just off the lane, he can turn and pass over you to the opposite side. And uh, that's that's unusual. Uh, you know, he's a, a behemoth that can move and uh, he's very skilled. And, you know, you let him get to that left shoulder and he's going to score in the lane. Uh, but he makes his free throws and, and he's a presence on the defensive end. Uh, so you have to devise. You really have to game plan for him on both ends of the floor. Uh, one to devise ways to get him away from the basket so you can tack the rim without him being there or at least recovering late. And then you have to decide how and when you're going to double him. Uh, and then, you know, because he is, uh, he's just a force down there. And he was really good last year, but he, he split time with Travion Williams. And this year he's playing. He played over 40 minutes in their last, their overtime game against Nebraska. So his stamina is not an issue. He, As long as he stays out of foul trouble, he's going to be in there.
2: Jay, looking at a team that Purdue beat earlier in non-conference play in Duke, so you saw them at their worst against the Boilermakers, and then you saw them at their best against Iowa at the Garden this past week. Duke not typically known as an elite defense, at least over the last five, six seasons, but why has John Shire been able to get the most out of his group at that end of the floor in his first season replacing Coach K?
0: Well, they've got really good defensive versatility. So they've got a tremendous amount of size and they can block shots and protect the rim. Uh, but they've also got some really good perimeter athletes that can pressure the ball. They're not uh, a, a, as much of a denial team and a, a turnover forcing team. Um, so they, they contain pretty well and then they make you take difficult shots and try to limit you to one. But, uh, you know, in years past at Duke, you know, they would force a lot of turnovers. And uh, kind of be suffocating. And that's not quite the makeup of this team. But I think uh, because they're so young, they had some injury problems to start. Derek Whitehead uh, has gotten off this slow start because he was injured the first five games, whatever it was. And then uh, Derek Lively, the second, uh, got off this slow start because of his injury issues before the, the, the actual season started but um, John Shire built the foundation defensively. And I think that was a really smart way for him to do it. You know, they'll be able to score. That's not going to be a problem. Uh, The question is, can they get stops? And I think they've proven they can, but they're a top 10 caliber team. uh, And with the talent level they have, as they get older, uh, I think they can, they can build, uh, build on that. I, I just think, you know, the ACC is such an old league. I mean, so many of the teams have nothing but, you know, fourth and fifth year seniors. Uh, So, you know, it's going to be a challenge, especially on the road to play against so many older teams.
1: Jay, touching on Kentucky a little bit, since you just saw them play Michigan and London a couple weeks ago, what do you see from this half court offense so far? They've struggled a little bit in some games. They got a little bit better of shooting from Antonio Reeves in London. What can the Wildcats really do to kind of improve that spacing around Oscar Sheba and maybe get some more consistency out of their half court offense?
0: Well, you can space all you want to. If guys can't make shots, the defense doesn't go with you. The, the key in spacing isn't the actual spacing itself. It's, it's can you stretch the defense. And defenses don't shade to bad shooters. And, uh, and Kentucky's got some really good players. Uh, they've got, a, I think, a nice mix of older guys and younger guys. But, uh, you know, Antonio Reeves is their best shooter by far, and then probably C.J. Frederick. Uh, uh, and Kayson Wallace can make open ones. He's a really good player. Kason Wallace is a uh, as complete a, a freshman as there is in the country on the perimeter. But you know, Xavier Wheeler doesn't shoot it, uh, and they gotta settle on a rotation and get more consistent performances out of guys like Chris Livingston. And I don't think Oscar Shebwa back yet. I mean, he's not a hundred percent yet, and and still, whatever percentage he is, he's still getting fifteen rebounds and all that. So he's a remarkable, remarkable rebounder and presence in there. But uh, but he doesn't look like himself just yet. So they're still a work in progress. I think they're very good. Uh, they haven't struck me as, as you know, knocking on the door of, of being among the, the very best teams, but, but they're among the better teams in the country.
1: Yeah, with the SEC being so loaded, do you see Kentucky as the favorite right now? No. Um,
0: I, I think they're really good. Um, if you know, Trevin Brazil getting hurt uh, and being lost for the season with that ACL at uh, Arkansas is devastating, Arkansas is still going to be good there. I think Arkansas has got a little more pop and with Nick Smith Jr. Coming back and he's starting to really play now. um, He's a star caliber player and a a lottery pick as is Anthony black. Um, I I like Arkansas. They're just really young in spots. Um, So that Brazil being out takes away a a high wire athlete coming off the bench. Uh, But, but they're, they're very, the council is really good. uh, And, and I, I like their team a lot, uh, a lot. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Kentucky's right in the mix there. But it's not it's not a quote-unquote normal year for Kentucky where, you know, they're the best team and everybody else is chasing them.
2: And, Jay, a team you saw practice earlier today and faces Kentucky this weekend, UCLA. They're at the top of the conference with Arizona, obviously. Wildcats with a big win against Indiana over the weekend. So in a lackluster Pac-12 which team do you see as the best in the conference, UCLA or Arizona?
0: Arizona, but UCLA is really capable. They're right there. Uh, but Arizona's got um, better big guys. Like, they're, they're, their big guys are really, really good. And Azulis Tubelis is the best running big guy in the country. By far, he's, like the, he's like the Usain Bolt of big guys in college. <laughs> uh, I, I can't recall a guy that has run consistently in transition as hard as, as he does. And when he runs, um, you know, he challenges the opposing big guy to get down the floor and wears him out a little bit. And he cleans out so much space, which allows, the, you know, their break allows great opportunities on the break. And uh, I'm a big fan of Kirk Crease as a point guard. He's really talented, and really good. Um, you know, I was a little surprised they went to Utah and got beat. But um, but they're 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 probably the top team. And then UCLA is right with them uh, UCLA has got really good players, you know, Mari Bailey's freshman left-hander that can really play. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think Jaime Hawkins Jr. is an NBA player. He's going to play in the NBA for a long time. He's a stud. Uh, so they're going to be right there. They're very good. Tiger Campbell's as, uh, as efficient and as tough of a point guard as there is in the country.
1: Jay, one final question for you. You touched on traveling 30,000 miles in 30 days. (laughs) Is there like a bucket list country or arena or league that you've never called a game in? Obviously, you've called a lot over the years.
0: Yeah, I've been in this 27 years. So there are very few places that um, – let's leave it to the United States because I don't want to put in my closet <laughs> brains so that I want to go all over the world because <laughs> uh, I'm a little tired right now. But I, I would say in the in the U.S., I've never done a game at Oregon. And okay. uh, and I always wanted to do a game at Mack Court, but that's closed now. And they got the the new arena. Uh, never done a game at Bud Walton in Arkansas. I've had Arkansas a bunch on the road and, and at, at different tournaments. And then I've never never done a game at the Pit in uh, in Albuquerque. So I would say those three. But pretty much everywhere else that that you call bucket list, I've been, and I'm very grateful but there's still there are a few you know if you uh you know sort of analogize it to golf there are a few there are a few tracks i haven't
1: played that i'd like to get in the top 100
2: scott's a big golf guy so that worked out well
1: yeah that was a great analogy for me
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's jay billis you can follow him on twitter at jay billis espn college basketball analyst and again calling that game NLA, the ESPN high school basketball broadcast featuring Bronnie James. Jay, really appreciate the time you have taken some time out of your day for us talking college hoops. My pleasure. Great, great insight from Jay Billis, especially touching on where he would like to broadcast a game next. Can't believe he's never been to Arkansas to call a college basketball game and Oregon. They do have Bill Walton on the West Coast. How could you forget about Bill Walton?
1: How could you replace <laughs> Bill Walton? But Jay Billis is one of a kind. Definitely, and uh, you know this is going to be an incredible weekend of college hoops, Eli. We touched on it with the six or seven Saturday games that we hit on alone, numerous other games to watch in terms of conference play beginning and everything like that. But one thing we got to touch on the end of the podcast: what's the status of Louisville this week? I've keep I keep telling our listeners to fade Louisville, but now they have some actual competition that they could beat. Yeah, the double meaning of Kenny
2: P really comes into play here because. (laughs) Kempom has Louisville projected as a three-point dog against Western Kentucky at home. So some adjustments from Kenny P for Kenny Payne's team. And then they play Florida A&M, which is ranked 359th on Kempom. That game is lined at Louisville minus 15 on Saturday. Any chance, Scott? Any chance? I know you might take a shot with Western Kentucky on a Wednesday, but any chance you would be willing to back
1: the Rattlers on the road at Louisville on Saturday. I'm going to say no to that one, Eli. Uh, (laughs) As much as I am having fun and lining my pockets, fading Louisville this early season, they got to win at some point. And they have to win for the fans at home that have been going through this miserable winless stretch where they haven't won a game in so many months. So that's a stay away spot (laughs) for Western Kentucky. Like you said, I might be picking up on that one again, but... Yeah. Louisville, especially their offense is among the worst high major offenses I've seen in quite some time. Their guard play is awful. They don't make second half adjustments. Um, there's just like really nothing to like here. They got blown out by Florida state. I mean, what besides Cal, you know, if Cal wasn't doing so hideously <laughs> bad themselves and getting blown out by teams like Butler and losing the Eastern Washington at home, then Louisville would be the runaway. But How do we get a Louisville Cal game at some point this season? Can we make that happen?
2: We not only need a Louisville Cal game, but we need Jay Bellis on the call for that game. No, I I don't wish
1: that upon anybody to call that game. We just have that. (laughs) we, We just run that in silence, like a, like a silent picture from the 1920s. We'll just watch the horror play out on the screen and you don't need commentary to understand the blood that you're watching there. It would be awful.
2: Yeah, the one area of concern with Florida State in that Louisville game was their ball pressure. Western Kentucky does rank below average in terms of turning opponents over, which maybe favors Louisville a little bit with that one, truly one guard in L. Ellis, but I've stayed away from Louisville for the foreseeable future. That is Scott Phillips. You can follow him on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. Follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich and follow the lines on Twitter at the lines us so long. And we'll talk to you next month.